AI is, you know, automating the mundane tasks, whether or not a company uses AI, that they're going to have an interface that is just as simple to use as an AI tool would be to discover. Simple human language is, is the way to make something universally acceptable because, you know, we came from a world of QA and um, technical. We were originally going to present to engineering. Debugging is a very technical word mm -hmm. where you're problem solving, right? Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another Future of Product. Today, I am incredibly excited to welcome uh, my compatriot, uh, fellow Player Zero uh, person, Rebecca Palazzo, our head of UX. Uh, Rebecca, would you mind introducing yourself to uh, the future of product fans? Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you all. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I felt honored that I got to be a part of this very unique journey you've been taking everyone on. Um, but yeah, my name is Rebecca. I am head of product, whatever that entails at a, at a startup, um, just trying to make the best design decisions and product decisions and experience decisions uh, for our team and kind of an ever-changing world. So it's been really exciting and, and very, very dynamic over the past now, almost four years being with the team. Right on, right on. Let's, um, let's dive a little bit into kind of your story, right? Um, what led you into UX design in general? We'll start there and then kind of bridge that into uh, what got you to Player Zero. Yeah, I, I took quite a wild path. Um, I've been really enjoying talking to product owners who have also done come from like education and, and some other industry um, shifts. But I started off in advertising, mostly because I love people. I love understanding people, their intentions, their needs. And that kind of was the only thing that I'd been exposed to because I grew up in New Orleans, and there's not a lot of growing tech there. So mm -hmm. UX, UI wasn't necessarily a space that was proposed to me or was really growing at the time just yet. Um, start off in advertising. It's a very dated industry though. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to be in a space that was dynamic and growing and changing and it's challenging, but in its own kind of, um, very old ways, mm -hmm. set ways. Um, and then kind of merged into a little bit of a design world where design wasn't about people, their intentions, their needs. So everything I loved about advertising was lost in design, but design was something that kind of what I wanted to focus on in advertising. Um, and then I had a unique opportunity to join a team and, and learn UI, UX from um, an old a mentor that I had had. And, and she took me under her wing and, and, and patiently taught me how to kind of be a dual UI and UX um, leader at the company and really just kind of leaned into that, read as much as I could, listened to as many industry experts as I could, and really kind of found this strange, beautiful hybrid between like it was just like advertising, mm. but in a growing industry, it mm. was all about people. It was nothing to do with making things pretty. In fact, I often yell at my coworkers or team whenever they say, oh, it's pretty. I'm like, no, that's not what anyone mm. wants to hear um, because it's so much more than that. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. No, I love that. Let's, let's get into that a little bit more. What is the difference between pretty and usable? Yeah. So uh, I think that the biggest thing is pretty doesn't... Um, by any means reference how it's accessible mm. or intentional. It's just visually pleasing to the eyes. And, and oftentimes you'll notice people talk about pretty design. It's because it was intentional and about people. And so mm. there's this weird kind of, it, it's hard to describe, but you go and take a painting class and you have these like abstracts. You think about Van Gogh and the, the craziness about it and like nothing is understandable because nobody got into its brain. Mm. Uh, that's art for art's sake. And I think there's this like weird merge of pretty insinuates more art than it does uh practicality mm -hmm. where you know if you, you can it's it's just like complimenting somebody's looks i think right like you don't want to start off with somebody's beautiful you want to start off with their intelligent they're mm -hmm. thoughtful they're mindful um it, they can also be pretty right so great design often is beautiful because it's clean it's simple um but great design puts people first it's thoughtful it's simple in character, it almost looks easy. It almost looks like it didn't take a lot of time because it is so thoughtful. So I think that's the biggest difference that um, I've understood over, over the years. I love that. It's great. It's a great definition, right? Um, how did you kind of reach that understanding of, you know, the UX, UI kind of role working in that more traditional uh, kind of realm of advertising, right? So I honestly don't really think it was a huge transition for me because, again, the, the core of it, the understanding people, their intentions and needs, you do user interviews, you do massive researches, you, you send out surveys, you do kind of small um, focus groups, uh, you understand a market. The, the biggest difference for me that was even more exciting is 
I was at a company, I did UX for a specific company. I wasn't split into to many and in advertising, you're split into many. I know you came from that yes. world too. And it's every six months you're context shifting, learning about, yep. you know, uh, Zadaran's Jambalaya and their whole culture. And then the next month you're learning about law and mm-hmm. like maritime law. And, right. um, <laughs> but here, right. And especially with player zero, it's so siloed and so focused that mm-hmm. understanding the users has been absolutely the most important, like exciting part for me because yeah. there isn't a six month window. It is going on and on now for four years. And I am also one of our users. So it just ends up working out in my favor that I, I can understand myself and our, and our users better. No, right on. I love that. Um, it seems to be something that I kind of come to the conclusion of with a lot of my guests is that when you're building for something that's relevant to you that you would actually use in your day to day, it's a lot easier to kind of think through. And, and, you know, we typify it as like personas, right, in marketing and product. But if you are the persona, it's, it's a lot more second nature, right? Um, so let's get into a little bit of, you know, kind of the background with Player Zero. So how, how did you get introduced to Player Zero? What was that journey like? Yeah, it was exciting. I'd uh, been saving up for a home and was taking on as much freelance as I possibly could and got connected to Automesh, our CEO and, and founder, and um, just thought it was going to be a little freelance gig. And, and just, it's funny you said that about how it's solving my problems because previously I was at a payroll company where like I wasn't a payroll HR expert. It was such a different realm. And I'm very grateful for the knowledge I gained there because it is something that you know, is usable in my future. But um, this was a tool that like, I just slowly fell in love with. And even though we started off in the QA realm, I actually was serving as QA as in my previous role as well. And so I immediately was like, oh my gosh, this is going to change my world. This is absolutely going to make my life better. And even still to this day, when I'm QAing player zero, Mm -hmm. I still use our tool. Uh, And it absolutely changes my workload. And so now there's no BS. There's no like me making things up, trying to sell. Like mm-hmm. I'm passionate about it because I use it and I see the value. And so moving from kind of a headspace where you're, you're learning and doing to doing something for yourself. Right. Game changer. Yeah. No, hundred percent. hundred percent. That's awesome. And, and so it, it was kind of a, a natural fit, right? You came along. And ironically, it's kind of how I came up with a little bit too, right? I, I was coming off this big, um, web and and app overhaul project for a client and just having an absolute nightmare of an experience trying to QA, right? And, uh, uh, you know, here comes this product that (laughs) that can essentially solve that experience, make it a lot more uh, simple for somebody like me who's not technical. So it is, it's really interesting how, you know, that path kind of led both of us into building AI, which I don't think was the intention, right? It was kind of the outcome. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. It's you. I, I didn't round out. I forgot. Um, but like, whenever the offer was to join the team, right? It's a startup. It's scary. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just had bought a house because I had been saving with the money I'd made freelancing, and it's like, oh gosh, should I should I join the startup that's risky? And like, right. I, there was no doubt mm-hmm. because it was a product for me. I was like, I have to see this through. I have to see it through. And like, yeah. you know, we've been and the industry's changing every every time we want to release something big, the industry changes, and it's like, no, I still have to see this through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. It's, uh, it's a constant challenge, but it's also incredibly rewarding to be challenged in that way and to constantly have to find new creative ways. to. It's kind of the opposite of traditional advertising in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about AI, right? Um, so in the realm of UX design, kind of what you work in, what are the unique challenges with working with an AI product like Player Zero? Yeah, so it's it's been um, it's really interesting for me because I think for for UI and UX, right, the the AI journey is is a little it has to be a little bit more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so like how it applies to me and my workload and design and copywriting and things, it's just it's not as black and white as it is maybe more like uh, content writing or things like that. But you know, I know it affected me, and so once we started looking, right. The biggest thing for for UX, I think holistically, even like including player zero, mm-hmm. right, is that. AI is, you know, automating the mundane tasks, but it's also creating this kind of world where people are going to expect the conveniences that AI provides right. in all of UX. Right. And so while right now it, AI is a commodity when it comes to answer seeking and discovery, um, it's creating an expectation whether or not a company uses AI that they're going to have an interface that is just as simple to use as 
an AI tool would be to discover. And so that goes along. We've been talking a lot about data warehousing and that's changing the data space and, and how kind of applications holistically are being built and how people are storing data models. But it's, it is a scary, exciting because it's going to change how we think about problem solving in, in UX entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of focusing more on kind of player zero and, and our UX, right? It's, it's also, it's so new. So there mm-hmm. haven't been a lot of wild innovations or deviations. You know, I read this book, it was by Austin Cleon called Steal Like an Artist. And it's been my favorite book since yeah. uh, college. And it talks about there's like no I- original ideas, right? And, and that's something that's really difficult as a creative person to admit to. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just, you're constantly taking in and putting out something new, but it's coming from what you've taken. And, and right. so I think the big challenge now is going to be taking what ChatGPT has done with their chat interface, Perplexity, Hex, all of the different companies that we've been looking at as models mm-hmm. um, and, and creating something that both feels comfortable, like what right. they've created for people, but also unique enough uh, and exciting enough that we're continuing to disrupt the industry and we're continuing to show people that data can be presented in more and more beautiful ways. So it's, it's it's an exciting challenge, but it's a little daunting because there is no space yet that we can mm-hmm. see of, of kind of what that looks like successfully. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I, I feel like at this point, it's kind of a race to strip away as much user work as possible, mm-hmm. right? Um, which I do think is kind of a common trait to the way that technology is, has been moving for a long time. But with that being the case, you know, how do you take something that's rather complex to explain directly and turn it into something so intuitive to use, right? I think that that's the big challenge facing people who want to incorporate AI into their products. Yeah, we learned early, um, right? Honestly, right after you joined that people don't like Oz. They don't Mm. like the mysterious man behind the veil. Um, They want transparency. And I think that kind of is really, really inspired. We did so many user research kind of discovery calls then. And, and at no, everyone always had a question like, how did you get this? How did you Mm. see this? How did you do this? And it was kind of like, well, don't you just trust us? But, and that was asking a lot of people. And, and so with the complexity of AI, I think, you know, we haven't solved it yet because Mm. we're still kind of actively working on this and this new release involving um, open AI. But the big thing that we've been talking about is this, idea of full transparency, right? So when it's data, it's data, it's presented as data, it's accessible, it's not intimidating, maybe it's reduced down to be less noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're then transparent about what was reduced down, what was eliminated, maybe giving access to seeing that if people need to regain their confidence. Right. Um, and then what is an assumption or what is a story or a narrative that maybe something behind the veil is created, mm-hmm. arming that story with, again, the data to back it up. And so I think a lot. it's a lot more about... Um, almost citing, Mm -hmm. like if we're thinking English papers, citing kind of where this information came from and allowing people to access it if they want to gain trust. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but also delivering reduced down content beautifully. So it's, it's a, it's a balance from what I've been seeing. Um, and not like incredibly simple because incredibly simple is Oz and complex feels like you're looking into a SQL, you know, database trying to find and discover. Right. So it's kind of that perfect middle point. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, as you've been kind of working through this, getting feedback from, from users and, and customers and stuff, what have you found that's been kind of like that aha moment that kind of hits that middle line between this is simple. I know how to use it. It's familiar, you know, fits like a glove, but also I have confidence. Cause like as a data product, like you said, I think that trust is a huge element. You know, it's something that I've talked to previous guests about with like black box modeling is, incredibly hard to actually get user buy-in because this thing could be telling you, you know, something completely made up when in reality, the answer is something completely different. Yeah. So in the, in the feedback we've gotten, again, the space is difficult because they want data. They Mm. haven't had access to data products, Mm. product people don't have access to data. And if they do, they have to wait a month for a report and the data stale, or if they have access, it's to very, rudimentary information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, and what we've been trying to do and focusing on making data accessible right. um, and also not only accessible, but like telling a story product doesn't want there. It, it's, it's, it's complex, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what, what we've heard from everyone is that they almost, it's like, and they're thinking about it. Someone is like an intern, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of the automated mundane tasks. Again, right. bringing that back up. Right. 
So whenever a, an intern would present data, they present the simplified data, mm. but they want to be able to back it up. And right. and everyone universally between Matt and, my, and you and myself that mm. have gotten feedback, mm. the feedback has been, it can't be something where you're like, I'm 70% confident about this because without ultimate confidence, they right. will not act on it. Yeah. Um, because their jobs are on the line and they're the glue that holds the company together and mm. glue cannot be not confident it is going to hold together. Like we need the gorilla glue. We right. need that gorilla glue to come in and hold it all together. And that requires confidence. And so that's kind of been the biggest feedback. And the most challenging feedback is, mm. you know, we in our previous iterations had a lot of assumptions and had a lot of, you know, we're 57% confident, we're 87% right. confident. And like right. at that point, all confidence is lost because numbers are mm. not what they need. They need us to deliver them the information and the facts. Right. No, hundred percent. And I, that's a great point, right? Is um, if you're eighty-seven percent confident, I'm a hundred percent confident. You don't have the right, right. answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm eighty-seven yeah, percent so confident. I'm in love with you. Where's the other? You know what? Well, what's what's this thirteen percent <laughs> sitting mm-hmm. out in no man's land? Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> yeah. No, a hundred percent. But um, that's that's a great point. So that, that being said you know, we have always sat in like the ML space, right? And I think that that's um, something just to give kind of the audience a little bit of background on. Um, I think the one of the big directions that we're pushing in now is making that interface more um, recognizable as far as like generative AI goes, right? Like layering that on top of what we do. But we've always had machine learning under the hood being kind of the driver um, of these data insights. Do you feel that, you know, so you, you sit on, on a, in a inter- really interesting place because you do UI, UX, you're also like a brand designer, right? How do you infuse a brand into a product whose interface changes so wildly? It's it's funny. We actually had a talk about this last week. It's It's been a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we even had a whole naming debacle and did a ton of user studies on that. And that was exciting and terrifying all at the same time. But um, I think the biggest thing that we've been focusing on, right, is just not losing our ICP, not mm-hmm. losing who we're selling to, because in the end... There are, you know, there's some companies, Koala and June, I think mm-hmm. came out recently that are beautiful and playful. And we had these player icons made of like over a year ago now, because we had this idea of having characters come to life. You know, our name is player zero. Mm-hmm. There is heavy in the fact that like something else is doing something for you before right. you. So you have less work to do, right? You're player one, you're coming in, you're ready to play the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had these player icons. We've been pushing for them, pushing for them to give that personality and that charm, right? But remembering our ICP, getting back to who matters and actually who, who's going to buy us, mm-hmm. who's going to use us. Um, those quirky, fun, playful design cha- choices and, and kind of that Qual and June have moved in towards are perfect for their ICP, but they're not perfect for ours. Um, and so it's, it's remembering that constantly because what we're doing is simple. Mm-hmm. And even though it seems complicated, right? Like we're, we're merging tons of data, we're merging people data, we're moving, merging eng data, marketing data, sales data, um, success data. And so it's a lot of different personalities coming into one space. It needs to be clean. It needs to be delivered with confidence and it needs to be delivered to where it's accessible for all. And now more than ever, accessibility and clean design has been such a focus, you know, um, we have some kind of mentors that have been involved in Vercel, and I think they're a beautiful example of a tool, even though it's heavy in the end space, mm-hmm. uh, it's the leaders of a company that buy into Vercel and buy into their whole movement. And their design absolutely emulates that persona because it's it's clean, it's sleek, it looks mm-hmm. rich and expensive because it's so clean and sleek. And like I talked about earlier, right? Like good design looks like somebody did it overnight, Mm. but it actually took them longer than anybody else who even made beautiful icons and characters and personas. Um, So that's been a really exciting thing for, you know, Anamesh and I to have conversations about recently and just not trying to like, you know, have this, especially with a conversational bot, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to humanize it. You're trying to give it a character. You're trying to, you know, we talked about naming. Is right. that important? Do you want it to have a name? Um, does naming it give it this weird personality in which there may be mistrust because it's more humified, right. hu- humanified? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that word is. <laughs> I think that works. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to the small nuances, but overall, right? Like AI is intimidating to everyone and, and mm-hmm. especially, um, people 
who are outside of more of the technical space, customer success, service, marketing, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Even myself, right? As a product person, we're not in the end space. It's not normalized, right? Like our team's Mm -hmm. been working with machine learning for, you know, over five years now. And it's like, it was their second nature for them. Um, But being careful that this really intimidating element of our product is friendly, but not like your best friend who Mm -hmm. then you know, removes the seriousness of the data that we're providing. Totally, totally. And you mentioned kind of um, making this usable for ICP, right? Which for us is is product people, right? How do you go about making something like Player Zero usable for non-technical people, right? It, it seems almost counterintuitive. Yeah, so something, um, one of my first mentors, when she taught me UI UX, mm-hmm. she overkilled the word simple human language. I know it's not a single word, but Mm. she constantly would look at me and be like, is that simple human language? Mm. And I was, I was just so, I didn't understand. I didn't understand until like one day it hit. And, you know, I used to use a Hemingway editor on, um, on Google and Mm. I don't know if anyone else has used it, but it basically takes what you've written and it tells you what grade level you've written at. Mm. Um, and especially in advertising, it's really important that your grade level is really low because then you can include everyone. Uh, I think the same thing applied for, for us is that just simple human language is, is the way to make something universally acceptable because, you know, we came from a world of QA and um, technical. We were originally going to present to engineering. And so in our heads, it was always debugging. It was developer, mm-hmm. like developer tools, console, data mm-hmm. logs. Um, and a lot of that has been just removing that from our language because um, debugging is a very technical word mm-hmm. where you're problem solving, right? right. And, it's a, and that's something we problem solve things day to day. You know, we problem solve fixing things at home. We problem mm-hmm. solve, you know, things with friends and families and whatever, right? So just always remembering to take a step back and consistently focus on simple human language right. is the only way because we are bridging so many different personalities, personas, mm-hmm. and types of language, um, yeah. You yeah, know, absolutely. I love that. It's like a simple human language can be applied both to the visual language and the written language that you use. Right. So uh, I think that that's kind of what ChatGPT, why it was able to kind of captivate so many people is that everybody's used a chatbot in the past. Right. I think we've all been underwhelmed by chatbots in the past. And so to have an experience that's almost identical to that, that only requires, you know, a written input that we're all familiar with through the form of like texting with people you're able to kind of demonstrate the value um, that this incredibly complex AI model has in a way that's very intuitive and and easily understandable, right? So earlier you kind of mentioned um, user feedback, right? And uh, we had this pivot from engineering to product. Would you mind talking a little bit about how you got those kind of concrete feedback points from users? Yeah, so... um... I think I can speak for the majority of us. Uh, Product people like to talk. I think that's also why it was something like I wasn't meant for the graphic design world because Mm. a lot of people in the design world are are more introverted. Um, And there was something there. It was just missing. I was missing people. I was missing talking. Um, And so when we were in an engineering space, you know, I would DM people on LinkedIn and ask Mm -hmm. for feedback. And and it was, it was a struggle. It was, um, and also engineers time is just so valuable that like if, there's no tit for tat. There's no, like, they don't get anything from a conversation. Um, when I was starting the day, I started messaging product people on LinkedIn. Um, you know, the phantom buster started turning and burning and Mm -hmm. I got, I feel like immediate five people immediately. And I was just jumping for joy. Um, and over, I, you know, I probably had since we pivoted in February, it feels like I was hitting about, you know, two or three calls a week just because it's not my primary role um, at the moment. And then like they, they went up and started having like five or six calls and and each week, at least one person would be like, wow, like I'm so excited to reach out. Like I'm so mm-hmm. happy to connect with another product person. Cause like everyone feels the need to connect. Yeah. Um, so that's just been a really lovely change. And so like, you know, at the end we're always like, Hey, if you need, if you need feedback, reach out. My team's always available mm-hmm. and like, you know, giving them feedback on their product. But um, the, the general kind of at first, it was just to kind of understand them. So it was a really awesome, exciting conversation that lit- took every twist and turn. Um, there were trends that, you know, we found, but it was more just to understand like different product people's priorities. It really just depends on the company they were at. Yeah. And so that was a difficult challenge for us to kind of circumvent, right? Is that mm-hmm. 
do they care about issues and problem solving? Are they more focused on road mapping? Are they right. focused on being the glue, right? There's all these like small nuances, but totally. that was just kind of like an aggregating phase. Um, and then almost right when an aggregating phase ended, there one of them suggested this tool called Fathom. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an AI tool. Um, it records the videos and takes notes. And so that was actually a really beautiful way for me to have better notes, to have better intuition and, and feedback afterwards, because yeah. I didn't have to write down anything. I just have genuine conversations with these people. Um, and products people just, they just need help prioritizing and, mm-hmm. and automating those mundane tasks, right? right? It was, they all universally, whether or not they cared about bugs, whether or not they worked with service, whether or not they were a product owner mm-hmm. or, you know, a leader of the company or just a doer, the universal thing was just that like, they weren't, they didn't have the tools to successfully do what they needed to do on a day to day. So they were just doing their best. And whether or not it was, they had like one woman was like, I have no room for to take in any more tools. I'm on tool overload and I'm getting nothing out of any of them. Yeah. Was like, okay. Noted. Understood. Uh, and then, you know, another person was like, no, we don't have tools. Cause we like, we can look at all of our users every single day. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, that's also a perspective. Right. Right. Um, and then they're obviously, not solving world hunger, but like a tool being brought into a company is a bigger deal in some places. And so it was like the, right. you know, the politics of it. So it was a lot of learnings just around how they talked about their problem of prioritizing mm-hmm. and getting the information that they needed. And then the path that they would take once they found something that would help them to integrate it in, to bring it in, because it does cross so many boundaries in a company. Those are the biggest highlights for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I feel like you do a very good job of this is going beyond kind of like the quantitative or constructive models of personas, right? Like, um, I, I'm glad that you talked about that process. Um, I talked about it a little bit uh, in my episode with Matt is when we sat down with all those PMs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that we kind of put into our personas before meeting with them that once we actually got in the room with people, you start to see those assumptions fall apart, Right. And you kind of build a much more robust actual picture of, because everybody's a real person, right? I mean, trying to construct models around people is is typically a failing effort. Um, But I feel like you're a person who's very skilled at being able to incorporate that feedback um, in a way that the qualitative model almost like lives in your head, right? Like earlier today, we're talking about a, a potential feature and... I think that's scope creep, right? Because you know who the persona is, you know what their day-to-day looks like, you know what the processes that they need made more efficient are. Um, so I guess my question would be, what is kind of the secret magic behind being able to really embody that persona once, you, once you've done all these interviews, once you've kind of internalized the, the needs? I think it's a lot easier um, mm-hmm. for me today because again, I am I am they, they are I, whatever that quote (laughs) is from. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's a lot of empathy I can give versus sympathy. And Mm -hmm. I think empathy goes such a long way when you are already in shoes. You don't have to understand how they feel. Um, You know, but even when you take four steps back and, you know, I'm I'm outside of player zero and and just focusing on the person. um, I think it's just remembering that they're a person, right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. at, at my last job, a lot of the conversations, it's just sitting there and watching them try to do something and hearing their frustrations mm-hmm. and just taking it in and, you know, maybe even imagining, I'll be like, Oh, well, how, well, how would I have felt if that happened? Right. right? And it, right. it's creating the sympathy because it's not my shoes and I could never understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, over all of that, I, I like to, to not assume, I think that's something that I've really worked on. I think it's something that I've pushed all of y'all, like, you know, instead of answering a question and being like, well, tell me why, because, it's easy to assume and move on in a conversation Mm -hmm. and you lose the connection that you could have gotten when you ask, well, can you tell me a little bit more? Or why do you say that? Or, you know, those, those leading questions that I know every user researcher just thrives on asking, Mm -hmm. you know, I went to the user testing conference and there was a whole presentation about follow-up questions Mm -hmm. and not ever answering questions, but doing in a way gracefully that doesn't make people angry that you've never answered them. Um, But it, allowing somebody to to sit on the truth and to think about why they asked something and to give you the real reasons does everything for me that you know I don't get in just maybe a google search on like why do product owners not use data tools right, right. and like 
it, it just, there's so much more in that gray space that that allows me to handle. I think that's really what I find gives me the most sympathy and empathy in the end. Totally. So would you say that those follow-up questions um, and kind of the poking and prodding that comes after kind of what you have scripted is the main way that you're able to kind of go beyond, you know, like the template? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble uh, from all the other uh, user researchers out there, but I don't script anything, yeah. um, including this conversation. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the natural, f- like fluid form of good conversation mm-hmm. and it bites me in the butt often, I will say. Like there have, there have been a lot of product conversations where somebody may have misunderstood what I asked mm-hmm. and then I can't rein it back in and that it's on me to grow and learn. Um, I obviously like practice my pitch about the product and mm-hmm. how we talk about it and that may write it down for the first two weeks. Right. Um, but I think the best advice, you know, I used to talk to my interns about is again, treat people like they're human. And when you yeah. do that, you can have these natural conversations that are genuine and it doesn't feel like you're pushing for something. And and it also encourages curiosity and, and like, Oh, tell me more. Like, are, yeah. you know, tell me why you thought this. Like, oh, that's really interesting. I never even considered that mm-hmm. um, versus like feeling when you have a checklist um, and you, or you have numbers or you have prompts. It's difficult, I think, sometimes to not be like, okay, well, I have to get this question before the end of our conversation. Right. And you end up cutting them off at a really beautiful moment. So it's, there is a balance. I think I'm on the drastic opposite end of you know, no note taking and no mm-hmm. <laughs> bullet points and leading a conversation. So I think there is a special middle place. So please don't, you know, take me, you know, whole, like wholeheartedly there. But um, the more fluid and genuine a conversation, I think mm-hmm. the better I am able to grow and grow for player zero and understanding our ICP and, and what their actual needs are. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it, it requires empathy, right? I think that's the first step. Yeah. Is to, to really step into that person's shoes because, I think when you don't understand the question, having a, a more structured format makes sense, right? Um, you need to validate assumptions, invalidate assumptions. But once you kind of have an idea for who the person is, you've felt a little bit of their their pain, um, it's a lot easier to, to step into their shoes fully and actually um, just have a, a straight up person-to-person conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So... That being said, how, you know, how do you go to bat for the user when I, when you're in, you know, these product discussions with engineers, with product people, with marketing people, with a whole mix of different folks? And player zero. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny. Uh, I keep saying I use a product. Like I, re- I mm-hmm. use the product. Yeah. Um, and that is the problem that we are looking to solve, right? Mm-hmm. Is that I think in, you know, the space, you know, engineers are highly respected and, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. They are the brain trust behind all of the beautiful technology that we use every day. Um, and, and designers, you know, have the vision and, and product people see such kind of big visions and they oversee the journey of the vision. Um, but sometimes I think because they are the glue and because they're in so many different places at once, mm-hmm. they don't have enough to arm them. Right. So when we originally made player zero, there was, um, we were really focused on issues and problem solving and mm-hmm. showcasing how many people were affected by a problem. Right. right. So not all problems matter. Um, and yep. not all bugs matter. That was kind of our mindset. Mm-hmm. And I, I referenced that because that alone got everyone I talked to so hyped because they're like, oh my gosh, I get to know if something matters or not. Because today they try to go to bat to a problem. They're like, oh, hey, we're really hyper-focused on this other red handle issue for one of our high priority clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, CEO comes battering down the door and they're like, this is on fire. We need to fix it now challenging that is very difficult and and it's not encouraged all the time, right? Sometimes you just passively say, okay, we'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in the narrative and in, in caring about the company, right? It's in everyone's best interest to arm me with the information I need to make a better decision. Right. And that's kind of everything we've been focusing on and, and why I get so excited about being a part of this team, because it's changing the way that I discuss about problems or solutions or truly anything. And it's no longer, you know, not getting on the defensive, you're not right. defending, but you're having to arm yourself. We constantly talk about mm-hmm. armament, you know, seeing that blast radius, seeing what, right. who's affected, what's affected. Um, it's, it's all that extra stuff you need before going into battle for, totally. for the things that matter. And the things that matter are your company and your, your, or your team or, you know, your core value props or your KPIs, whatever you guys focus on. But mm-hmm. it definitely, yeah, it's, I, I'm stoked uh, because that's changed me today and what we have today in data. And 
it's absolutely going to change tomorrow for me. No, right on. Yeah, I uh, I feel like, you know, being in kind of the, the startup setting, um, the kind of juxtaposed with what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation is almost the only way that you can you can come up with a solution like this, right? Because we have these conversations daily where it's it's all of us together talking about the product, talking about the direction. And that's something that you miss when different departments are on different floors, right? Um, so building a solution that's able to bring those floors together really ironically can only come from a place where they're not separated in the first place. Um, so that being said, uh, what advice would you have for people who are maybe looking to join a startup, looking to enter the space uh, kind of based on your experience? This is endless. This is a whole hour conversation right here. Um, <laughs> I surely did not know what I was getting into. It was exciting, mm-hmm. but exciting was like the only thing I understood. As, like I said, New Orleans is not a really big tech hub, so I don't know. I didn't know anybody in startups. I didn't understand truly the sacrifices or fears, you know, that my parents were instilling. Of like, oh, you sure? And, you know. Right. Um, but I think the biggest piece of advice we we talk about this a lot is just is is. It holds in startups as it holds in large companies mm-hmm. is to not be married to an idea. Yeah. Um, and that's the most incredible advice I've ever been given as a designer, as a US, UX researcher, as an experienced kind of like path, you know, creator. Because um, I think the moment that you get attached to an idea, you kind of put blinders on from seeing mm-hmm. the bigger picture, from seeing other ideas. Right. So, you know, I told you all we started off as a QA tool and then we pivoted to being a more like automated testing tool. And then we pivoted to, you know, being an issue incident management tool. And then we pivoted mm-hmm. to being a Jira search integration tool to now where we are today. Right. And, and it sounds like a really long journey, but our, our problem solving space was never lost. We just were finding that the problem wasn't actually the problem. It was, there was something deeper, there was something more rudimentary or, you know, fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, not being married to an idea, is such a critical thing because all of us have beautiful ideas in the company. There's been six of us. We go back and forth every day and we're not afraid to challenge one another. It's not taken as offensive. It's not taken as disrespectful, obviously presented correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, It's taken as, you know, just deepening our understanding and trying to open up our eyes more. Um, So I think that would be my greatest piece of advice for anyone in any space, even just not even startups. Um, And then also just, believe in it. Right. I think often we, we talk about, you know, I, I left my very comfortable job, you know, that was a guarantee for, for a startup. And, you know, we are like, kind of why, like what, what got in like believing in Anamesh and his energy. And I think Mm -hmm. carrying the energy is critical because there are ups, there are downs, there are low points, there are SVB market crashes. Um, There are, you know, recessions, there are pandemics. (laughs) Um, We've kind of, I've been through player zero through them all. And it's one of those things where like, you could absolutely just be like pummeled to the ground with despair and uh, fear. But I don't think that any of us let those, that moment last for too long. I think we mm. processed it. We didn't put it in a box and shove it away um, because our energy, be- we believe in it. And I think if you cannot believe in the product that you are building at a startup, you should find another startup yeah. because that energy is contagious in both ways. If you are negative about it, if you do not believe in it, it is immediately felt by your team members. We have not had that, thankfully, um, but I've definitely met other people who just kind of have lost the thrill um, and also the the success of the company requires just, you know, people with the, who without a doubt will mm-hmm. go to bat for it. Um, because in these product conversations, especially if, right. if, if I don't radiate passion about our tool, like, why are they going to give me feedback about it? Why are they, wa- they're going to waste their time. That's well, just absolutely not respectful on either of our points. I think those are the two biggest learnings for me and then just be open to learn. I feel like we all wear 18 hats as does everyone in a startup. And if you are not prepared to wear 18 hats, go to an enterprise because totally. I think there are, you know, I know some people who work in, in different kind of big enterprise companies and they love the one hat land. You know, you mm-hmm. pick your hat, you wear it confidently. Yep. Maybe every day is not stressful. Maybe it's really cushy. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a world that is not a world that I enjoy. Right. Um, but that is a very different world that you're not really exposed to in college, right? You're not exposed mm-hmm. to, you're going to be asked to do QA while you're doing design because there's right. a pandemic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you figure it out. No, that's exactly right. I mean, and I think the uh, kind of the ad agency setting is, is a good one to kind of compare and contrast against, right? Because 
that is very much a world in which the goal is to build playbooks, right? Playbooks that are replicable across different clients so that you can provide one uniform product, right? Whereas what we do, and like you said, touching kind of like every different department on, on a given day in order to find kind of innovative solutions, kind of the opposite of building, you know, that consistent, constant roadmap. Now, obviously, as we mature, things will become more standardized. People will fall more into their departments, right? But these are definitely like the Wild West days, I would say. Um, and that's something that anybody who's joining a, a startup needs to be prepared for. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, horse bucking. It almost feels mm-hmm. like, you know, we're in a ring and it's just constantly trying to throw us off sometimes right. and we have to get really good at it. Uh, there are times when you fall, you just have to get back up. Um, but the Wild West is a beautiful comparison and it's not for everyone. Right. No, exactly. Definitely not but for it's everyone. damn fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. So let, let's touch a little bit more on um, specifically some of the, the pain points that come with being in a startup, right? Um, you and I had kind of like this uh, this product offering um, dev reports, right? That I think is is quite a good product and it's very useful for us internally and it's still a, a core component of the product, but we had kind of a different idea for how it was going to function for a while. And I know that for both of us, seeing that need to go away in favor of kind of a different direction was, was painful in one of those pivots, right? So how do you take something like that, you know, that you've put a lot of time into, a lot of work into, and you know, be able to come back to work the next day with a smile on your face, excited for kind of the new direction. Yeah. I honestly, Dev Reports was my baby. She <laughs> still is my baby. She still exists. <laughs> yes, she um, does. I still use her daily, but um, I think, you know, the thing is it's, it goes to my being married concept mm-hmm. earlier comment is you can't be married to an idea. It they, We've had so many good ideas. We honestly, Matt and I were talking the other day and we've had I want as confidently two products now that we could have launched and been successful with. Um, But as you know, we talk about how disruptive AI has been to the world, right? That ability, the agility to be quick and iterative and dynamic is so critical to our success that I can't be married to dev reports. It's a beautiful tool. It is a tool that will bring someone joy someday. If another company makes it more power to them. I will still continue to QA with it because mm-hmm. it is lovely. Yeah. Um, but I think honestly, you know, looking back, the funeral we had was needed because mm-hmm. today AI is again changing it, right? There is better ways to tell data stories. There are better ways to tell data stories mm-hmm. um, around things like dev reports and user journeys. And, you know, we can deliver the console and network dev like tools and all that and, and, the storage to a, as a report, but there is a more palatable manner to deliver that or mm-hmm. upload it or detect it. And, you know, I think our mindset around that entire product would be so different if we built it today, totally. um, especially because our user base is so diverse now and changing and we're wanting to make data accessible to everyone. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it was a tragic loss, but it was for the best. And, you know, it, it, it happens and we've I've now more into five products that we've fully built and, and really kind of pivoted on and mm-hmm. every time in the moment there's a couple of days where I'm like, Man, can I do this again? Right. Um and then we right. wake up and we have like a really there's one good product conversation that we have. Uh, I think mine happened about a week ago with Onamesh mm-hmm. and, and just talking about the excitement behind AI. Obviously the fears were still prevalent for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did my research, I did my due diligence. And so that it's easy to, to get over that morning quick when you're like, okay, I can see that we're not just following the new shiny thing. Right. We are still focused on problem solving and finding our moat and finding our value. Mm-hmm. Uh, this new tech is just helping us solve these problems that we were kind of patchworking or band-aiding together before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I love that point. Um, so, I think that's actually, it's a great segue because one thing that you mentioned earlier is kind of having faith in the founder, right? And having run your own thing as, as I have in the past as well, I do think it gives you almost a different vantage point into that, right? Because when you're touching every aspect of a business, it, it is a fundamentally different experience than kind of even us who touch a lot of different aspects, different departments within a day-to-day. Um, I, I feel like, you know, if you're at a startup, and you've lost that confidence in a founder, 
that's that's the breaking point, right? That's the one insurmountable. So doing that due diligence every time that there is a pivot, there is a change, something that isn't fully understood to understand where where you know the founder is coming from, I think is incredibly important, right? Yeah, so I think I'm the only remote worker of the team mm-hmm. right now, and that has been my biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, so outside of the pivoting and things, it's, you know, you miss those in-office conversations, mm-hmm. um, and you kind of have to be a little bit more intrusive and, and message and ping and keep going. But something that I've learned with so many pivots that we've had is just how to do that gracefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I will pester, I will send Zoom calls, I will add things to the calendar because nice the moment you fall behind behind the narrative is the moment that you feel like you're on an island mm. and they're like remote work isn't shouldn't be my demise when it comes right. to the story and understanding the story and storytelling and believing in Onamesh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a hurdle. Um, and so just kind of gracefully navigating those two weeks of just kind of regrouping and re-understanding and making sure that I don't stay on the island is, has been really important for me. And then, you know, just asking questions, like I said, you know, we talked about not being afraid to change in in our conversation earlier today, right? Like Mm -hmm. I only heard parts of it and I needed to understand better. And so just like, Hey, this sounds like scope creep. Can you tell me more? Because I want to understand. It's not like I'm, you're curb stomping something, but you're also just really focused on, understanding more and more and more because the way that you think about it's different the way that I think about it and, and so on. Um, so that's kind of the, the biggest way that I've been staying, you know, on ground with, with our founder. And, you know, after this many times, we, we better be dang good at it. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's, it's always hard because you think the last time's the last time. And then you're like, okay, I don't have to do this again. This is exhausting. Um, and you know, it's funny this week, I think, I came into the office and this is, this is the week where I've been re-energized. I've, yeah. I've understood the problem. I've been working on the solution space or I've understood the problem to the best of my ability while mm-hmm. we kind of develop the zero to one foundation of, of our tool. But the, now, now is the uphill excitement that we just right. need to keep going. Totally. Totally. So kind of given that, uh, you know, this is an AI tool and the, the kind of insane pace that AI is moving. How are you thinking about, building a tool that's going to address the needs of people, you know, six months, a year, two years from now, as opposed to just today, just right. Because we know that the solution today is different from the one coming tomorrow. Well, it's AI is going to take over the world by then. So it yeah. really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, no. So <laughs> that six, six months is probably as far in my brain mm-hmm. as we're working just because, you know, even yesterday, OpenAI just released some really rad new tool that's really helping our innovation mm-hmm. um, for this next release. But, you know, I mean, a year, honestly, too. But it's, I think, just trying to be an innovator, mm-hmm. but not disrupting right so we're, we're trying to think about the problem the problem hasn't changed we've been right. thinking about the same problem we've been trying to innovate for this problem for four years now for for you know there was this weird we we always used to reference it as the game of telephone early yeah. on so products people and engineering played a game of telephone and right. obviously that's the worst game in the whole world because by the end you're saying potatoes when we started off with grapes <laughs> and so we were trying to alleviate that pain and you know, the problem that we're solving today is the same problem is right. that there is a game of telephone, but it just extended so much more mm-hmm. across the company than we even believed we could solve for. Right. Um, so I think that's the important thing is that we, you know, uh, we didn't want to scope creep. We don't want to stretch out everywhere and say we can solve it world hunger. But now with AI, we are able to. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, I've firmly believe that this problem will still be a problem that companies have because mm-hmm. we've talked to startups, we've talked to enterprises, and no matter the size or how many people, it is really difficult to speak the same language. It's difficult yeah. to get the right information at the right time, and it's difficult to keep people at the, the forefront of everyone's minds, right? Yeah. Um, and so as we build, you know, we talk about our moat, that thing that makes us really, really special, mm-hmm. creating, you know, an understanding of users, creating an understanding of the data space and what we can present, just never forgetting that we are solving for the problem of telephone mm-hmm. because as long as humans are involved, humans will speak a different language. Totally. And I think that's why the AI movement and the path that it's taking rapidly isn't as terrifying to me um, as for, for our specific product as it could be for other industries because the data industry is just changing as a whole. Totally. 
but our problem still persists. Mm -hmm. um, even if people move to data warehousing or people move to different data models right. behind the scenes instead of just classic SaaS like websites, there will still be a communication issue. Right. Um, so I think, you know, for every like all of us, it's just remembering your ICP, remembering the value and making sure that your value still holds and it has been, which is, you know, pretty cool for, for us being in this position. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, that's super interesting. So there's both like this iterative mindset and the way that we approach the problem, the interface for the problem. How do you see your role changing, you know, in UI, UX as AI? Because, right, that's the other side of this is that while we're innovating and trying to build new products that disrupt people, they're also building products that sure. disrupt us constantly, right? So um, we've talked a little bit about how like product management is being bolstered and, and kind of made superhuman by AI tooling. What do you see as kind of the path for UI, UX designers in kind of taking that next step with AI tooling to be, you know, that much more productive? Yeah. So something that's exciting, I think, you know, um, you, you talk to people who are like really upset about the AI movement because they're going to get replaced air quote. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in early conversations, actually, because we were a machine learning tool before open AI really was pushed, um, people even responded with, well, we don't want to replace our QA. Mm -hmm. And there's always this fear of replacement. And from a UI UX perspective, right, you have mid journey making icons and you have mid journey making wireframes or iterating wireframes or getting, mm -hmm. you know, um, all these different design elements. And then from a UX perspective, right, it's, it's researching, um, competitor analysis mm. and the USP and all of this data that, that you're able to get. But what's exciting, I think that everyone needs to remember outside and even like designers, mm. you know, you as a, as a kind of like marketing comms guru is that like the job we know today is obviously not going to be here. And I don't know, yeah. soon, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, which is scary from like this comfort standpoint because I personally don't like change. Mm -hmm. uh, it is one of my, you know, things that I'm very aware of. I just don't appreciate having to pivot quick. But right. what is exciting is that we will be able to focus on the things that really matter, right? And the things that excite us and having these user conversations that are really personal that no AI bot can have. What an AI bot can do is get that quick USP or competitor analysis for me and like mm -hmm. mass data quantities and do the grunt work. And yeah. I think while, you know, on the days that I'm doing grunt work, I'm not able to have that empathy as much, or I'm not able to really process what I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And so it, it can help us take the like, you know, categorizing user behaviors and predicting future behaviors, right? When we're road mapping or planning projects, you know, taking out insights from all of the user data, all of those things that quite frankly are tedious and, and mm -hmm. eh, to me, it takes that away from me. It makes me a better designer because now I'm just drowning in beautiful insights that I didn't have before because I mm -hmm. didn't have the time totally. um, and allowing me to make better experiences, better decisions, have better mm -hmm. conversations, better planning um, as long as I'm kind of keeping that mindset. And I think what will be important is utilizing the tools to the best of my ability right. to get those kind of large volume jobs done that, you know, maybe I wasn't even doing before, right? Mm -hmm. So knowing that it's available for me, knowing I can optimize my job and then redefining what I want to do and what, what I want to be as a leader right. in the design space and the experience space. No, absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, if you are in a role, right, augmenting yourself to the best of your abilities, thinking about like what's to come and where the gaps are in your own workflows mm -hmm in order to make yourself that much more productive, basically replacing the work that your intern would do, right? Now, I have a, a slightly trickier question, um, which I have been asked before, which is, what about the new UX designer, somebody who is just coming out of university? W would you have any kind of recommendations for them if their complaint would be, well, all that grunt work that you're describing is how I would have gotten my, my first job, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's... So I think... With, with graphic design, right? It's easy mm -hmm. to be outshined by the new frilly designer who's just really, really creative, right? And that was kind of something I never claimed to be the best designer, but I am damn good at communicating and mm -hmm. planning. And, you know, you kind of, that T person makes up for, you know, not being perfect at the top with like all the subsequent things below. Um, but I think the new designers 
need to just be pro- proficient in kind of this data exploration, right? So they're mm-hmm. kind of, while that's their in to the industry, that's also kind of those things that now I'm adjusting to learning and processing data to have, find new innovative ways. Mm-hmm. And so now, right, like we're just skipping some steps, but they need to be comfortable with data. They need to be comfortable with with insights and being able to parse through them and getting their hands on it earlier versus that slow pace. So I think kind of talking in a big circle, if if I were a designer coming into this space today, you think you're immediately going to be given wireframe jobs, you're going to be given mm-hmm. kind of insight jobs to figure out what's going on, right? And what I imagine pivoting is that data, those insights will be given to you. Mm. So you just need to make better design decisions based off those insights and not just kind of go off of an island and mm. be like, well, I'm, I'm the creative here. I'm just going to do something fun and playful. Right. Right? right. So, cause that's the hardest thing. I think every time, you know, you're teaching an intern or teaching somebody who may be more junior, mm. it's like breaking that mindset of making things pretty and right. making sure you empathize they're handed the empathy or they're handed mm. the ability to empathize with, mm. with AI. It's, taking action based off of that. That's going right. to be the big change. I see. Yeah. And, and adopting kind of that empathetic mindset in the first place. Right. Um, and just constantly looking at yourself as an ongoing project. I think that that's, that's kind of the, the big takeaways, right? Yeah. Cause as a single person in college, right, you can't aggregate a lot of data. You can hold mm-hmm. a small group study. You can do research, you know, for a year and have and tons of interviews, but it's about something you created or something you made up. It's not the real world. And if it is, it's something smaller. Right. Um, but when you come to a, a, a bigger job, there's, you haven't had the ability to process that much data and, and mm-hmm. really empathize with users as you should have the ability to. I think a lot of UI, UX people come in and learn on the job. Mm-hmm. And so it's more of just like diving in. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Being open-minded, being ready to push yourself. Now, I so we're, we're getting a little close to time, but I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, the first one being, if you were, you know, a product leader or founder at a company who's looking to hire that first UI, UX person, what are the traits that you would look for? That's hard. I think... Um, it depends on if the founder is kind of a big thinker or not. Something mm-hmm. that we have been blessed with is a founder who has really incredible vision and, and is, has the ability to think big. He, you know, we talk a lot about that zero to one and he loves that space. Um, we're like, you know, I absolutely feel confident and incredibly comfortable from that one to 100, mm-hmm. um, because I can do interviews and research and things like that. Um, so I think if, if the, the founder's looking for, and they, they don't have that big picture mindset, somebody with a ton more experience, um, somebody who's had experience in different types of companies, I think is really important because without that, they don't necessarily know the right questions to ask for that big picture, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to, it's easy to find the small things, you know, like how can we solve this singular problem or how, but thinking about that moat, thinking about the big picture is difficult if you haven't seen that apply to to a few different industries and a few different stories. Um, but if you are a big picture thinker, I think you kind of open yourself up to somebody who, you know, could be not necessarily junior, but, you know, more kind of mid-level senior UI UX with a duality that they can both design and do um, user interviews mm-hmm. um, that just kind of begins to bring that empathy in, right? Because you can dream big, but people are still at the core and, you know, a lot of times founders don't have time for those conversations continuously. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's your job to confidently provide the data at that point, right. About those, those in-person conversations, um, to arm that founder with the knowledge that they need. So they don't, you don't necessarily, I wouldn't say need as much experience over vast amounts of industries Mm -hmm. as much as you do just having incredible conversations and getting insights based off of somebody else's vision. So the ability to kind of remove yourself from that and just take the time to understand your founder's vision. Right on. That's a great answer. Um, All right. So my last question for you, this is a real spicy one, is uh, what is your biggest hot take on AI, tech, UI, UX, whatever you'd like to lay out? Can you give me the definition of hot take before I spell it, please? <laughs> Something contrary to popular opinion. Yeah, so um, kind of leaning on the 
the idea for, for UI UX specifically, um, there's so much revolving around process. And this is actually something that I've been really um, working on since I joined Players Zero, right? Especially at startups, there's not enough time for process per se, right? So the, I think the biggest hot take for that, right, is that um, iteration doesn't need to happen before, you know, dev or, you know, it doesn't have to, your hypotheses don't have to be polished. Mm. Um, but as, as long as you maintain the not married to the solution, right? right? So I think for me coming in, somebody who wanted to follow the processes, wanted to set up structure, wanted to mm. make sure that we QA'd for X amount of hours before we went out to prod, um, being able to kind of let go and, and, and just kind of see the process through has mm. been invigorating because it just allows you to you know, get out there, fail and, and fail harder and fail faster. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's necessarily a hot take as it is much for, for people in startups, just like reversing the mindset that's been drilled into us for so long of mm-hmm. like, you need to make sure that it's tested because it's like, it's, you know, if it goes out to users broken, it's the end of the world. Um, but people are gentle and people are patient as long as you are gentle and patient with them. So I think that's my biggest learning personally that's become a hot take. Right on. That's a good one. H O T T A K spelling B. Well, Rebecca, this has been so much fun. I uh, I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, is there any you know? Let the people know where they can find you, follow you. You're a riveting follow. On oh, the Twitter is not for me. I'm sorry. No, um, I'm on LinkedIn. Definitely kind of building my community there, focusing on that since that's kind of been my main linkage to products people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so so connect with me on Twitter. It's Rebecca Malazzo. Um, you know, other than that, I don't really use uh, social media much because I'm on my computer all day and there's time to yes. step away and it's after work. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. This is, this is awesome. Yeah, no, ton of fun. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate it.